Christ Church Kingwood is a Christ-centered church that seeks to proclaim the gospel in both word and deed by glorifying God and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us now as we worship together in the ministry of the word. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. The text, the text for this morning... Is Galatians 2, 15 through 21, it says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then the servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuilt what I tore down, I proved myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if by righteousness, if, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you. Uh, for this day. Thank you for your word. I pray that we would hear it, um, that we would receive it, and that it would continue to change and transform us um, into your image. Just pray you'd be with me um, as I preach it, and that you would open our ears and our hearts to receive it. In Jesus' name. All right. So, good morning. I am Matt. I'm one of the, uh, Daniel, one of the men's coordinators here and uh, the rare opportunity that I get to preach. And this is my second time, so I'm pretty seasoned. So this should be pretty good. Um, I just want to start with uh, how appropriate these verses are in light of what we just went through um, with Resurrection Sunday. I mean, the death and resurrection of Jesus is not only at the center of our faith, uh, but it's the very power of God on display that brings us life. Um, the substance of that power is so clearly presented by Paul in these verses. Our hope in life and death, our hope in justification before our holy God, it's all found in Jesus' atoning death and resurrection. So with that said, do a quick recap of the events that we've um, already talked through in chapter 2. The start of the chapter, Paul recounts his return to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus. Uh, he establishes that his apostolic ministry is to the uncircumcised, just as Peter's is to the circumcised. He brings up the unity between his ministry and the ministry of the elders in Jerusalem. 
that they accepted Paul and Barnabas as fellow laborers for the work of the gospel. And he then goes on to explain how he had to check Peter on a bit of hypocrisy when it came to how the Gentile converts were being to be perceived by the Jewish believers. So that's where we last left off. And now we pick back up today's verses and there's so much here. Um, it moves away from that fully narrative style that Paul's been talking in, you know, he's storytelling and he moves into exposition and it's just saturated with doctrinal truth. I mean, you've got this core fundamental truth being reiterated, justification by faith in Christ alone. And it's a recurring theme in this epistle and it's one that drives Paul to not only question the church in Galatia on deserting truth as we saw in chapter one and we'll see again in chapter three, but it also calling his fellow apostles into question on how justification is to be perceived. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith, through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a pointed statement of truth, um, especially for a Jewish Christian. It's faith in Christ, absolutely, right? But there's all these other culturally embedded realities, right? <laughs> no, wrong. Paul says, no, uh, it's just faith in Jesus Christ. And so for, for us, you know, 21st century, live in modern America, I mean, it probably seems a little bit more obvious to us, right? I mean, we get the doctrine. We understand the concept. Um, these first century Jewish Christians really struggled because of this cultural attachment to the law. But we're 2,000-ish years past that point. I mean, we've had the Reformation. We've at the age of enlightenment. And now we live in a world where, more, where information is, is more readily available to more people than it ever has been. So are Paul's words concerning justification just gentle affirmations of truth that we're all basking in? I mean, am I reading this and going, um, you know, yes, Paul, nodding my head alongside, absolutely, in full agreement, as if I'm, standing as he rebukes these Galatians. Maybe, or maybe Paul's defense of justification by faith in Christ alone isn't just something that had a first century adversary. Maybe it's not just a relevant argument for the early church believers, heavily influenced by Jewish culture and tradition. Maybe it's a truth that stands diametrically opposed to the nature of man. After all, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So as much as I desire to align my heart with the reality that Christ is the sole means by which I'm justified in the sight of God, there's a less obvious opposition in me that believes that truth and yet still desires to be accepted on the basis of what I've done or will do or can do it's sneaky, as my wife would say. <laughs> Am I living my life as unto God because of what he's done through Jesus or because some small part of me thinks God is secretly looking for the next son in whom he's well pleased? And that's just one way that the flesh can distort truth. I mean, there can be other ways where the doctrine of justification gets missed in practice. 
to provide some practical context, I had a situation where my father went through personal moral failure, infidelity, and followed by repentance. And it had, and it still has in, in some ways, a very rippling impact. So from my perspective in this, I went from being angry to apathetic, and then I started having a mind towards reconciliation. Only the reconciliation had demands alongside it. I need to see X, Y, and Z being practiced for some predetermined amount of time, and then we'll talk, right? I had standards that needed to be met for me to justify reconciling this relationship. So anyhow, as time went on, I started reflecting on God's word in light of this scenario. I created a series of demands in my heart to qualify someone as worthy of a relationship. And in some way it seems justified, right? I mean, they missed the mark. And it's almost like, hey, lucky that I'm even providing a pathway for restoration here. But I missed the mark all the time. So if Jesus Christ is the standard, then life is typically a series of falling short of that standard. And I'd find myself heartily approaching the Lord through prayer, thankful for a justification that I couldn't earn, a forgiveness of sin that's enduring and a grace that enables me to even apprehend that beautiful reality. And in my reveling in the grace of God over my life, it began to shift my perspective on how I could move forward with my dad. I mean, apart from Christ, what do I deserve? What have I earned from my own merit? And if I stand before a holy God to be judged, is it not the blood of the lamb that alone that rescues me? And since that's the case for me, I mean, isn't that the case for all of us, especially those who fall short, which is kind of everyone? That's not, a, not to say that that is a uh, easy scenario, right? It's not to say that sin should be overlooked because grace abounds. There are still consequences in rebuilding trust and all the relational realities that go along with that. But for me in this instance, the truth of justification by faith produced a means to forgive from the heart and restore a relationship that at one time felt irreconcilable. So as the people of God, are we not called to show the same love and grace that we've experienced through Jesus? Or can I be so hypocritical in claiming that washing, covering, redeeming grace for myself and then withhold it from someone else? I mean, scripture points us to this relational understanding of forgiving and bearing with one another in Colossians 3.13. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And we see that message in the sermon text between Paul and Peter. So from Paul's perspective, Peter missed the mark in his conduct, right? Not in a morally grievous way, but I mean, he missed the mark nonetheless. And yet when we start in verse 15, Paul uses we. I mean, he's including Peter in what he's saying. It's an affirmation of the truth that both Paul and Peter prescribed to, a truth that belongs to God and has been given to men to proclaim. We, 
ourselves are Jews by birth, yet we know. So we also have believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ. When I read this, I'm seeing Paul's gospel love for Peter. I mean, he went from describing how he had to, call, how he had to call Peter out in front of pretty much everyone in the church to then affirming Peter's understanding of this essential gospel truth. And Peter made a mistake, he missed the mark. Yet Paul goes from describing his admonishing of Peter to including Peter as one who knows this truth. It's unifying. Paul is unifying his ministry with Peter's ministry to show that it's the same gospel. It's the same truth. The packaging might be a little different, but it's the same content. So Paul continues, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. I love Paul's rhetorical questions. Is this obviously false statement true? No way, right? Reminds me of Romans seven. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. So what's the arc that Paul's getting at with these verses in Galatians? He already described Gentiles as sinners uh, in verse 15, which that might seem a little bit harsh, right? <laughs> but he's framing this for a Jewish perspective that views adherence to the law of Moses as the only means by which you are not classified as a sinner. So sinners here is being used to describe those who are not living according to law as written in the first five books of the Bible. And Paul is saying that because of the gospel, they consider their justification to be solely found in Christ, not in their keeping of the law. Thus, he asked the question to the people who simultaneously believe in Christ and in upkeeping the Mosaic law. So to paraphrase this, if I put my trust entirely in Jesus, but the demand of the law still exists and condemns me as a sinner, is my holy following Jesus sin? And then he gives a resounding no as a response. Paul's pretty good at debating. And let's be honest. I mean, if he were talking to Pharisees that didn't believe in Jesus, they would just respond, yeah, you're sinning following Christ, right? But this group believes in Christ. And Paul's showing that to simultaneously adhere to the law of Moses and the law of Christ as a dual means of justification is false. It is logically flawed. The two concepts cannot coexist in the heart and mind of a rational person. Galatians 2.18, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What did Paul tear down? What was his life before Christ apprehended him on the road to Damascus? I mean, he alludes to it often, right? He was a zealous Pharisee. He lived by the law of Moses and he did so fervently. He was jealous for the law. He had Christians killed for the law. And being that invested in the law and the upholding of it in that state of mind, Christ intervened and helped Paul teared down his entire worldview. Everything he knew about fulfilling the law, about righteousness before God, even about God himself, it was torn down and changed. And what was in its place? Simply put, Jesus Christ. 
where Paul once had a striving towards righteousness through his own means of obeying the law of Moses, he found righteousness born of faith in Jesus. Where Paul once worked to earn favor in the sight of the God of Abraham, he found a freely given grace through Jesus Christ. So that's what was torn down. That's the part of Paul that was undone, the part of him that was crucified with Christ, as he says in verse 20. You see, there was a way that he was going, a life built upon adherence to something rooted in his ability, in his strength, in his zeal, in his works. And that was utterly undone, knocked off the horse, abruptly ended. And the important point that I believe Paul is really making with these verses is that when that old means of the pursuit of righteousness was no longer his path, and he was transferred into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It was a wholesale exchange. Paul didn't keep a little bit of his zealous works in his back pocket, just in case the whole faith angle didn't pan out. No, righteousness through faith in Christ alone replaced it all. So if in his redemption, his initiation into God's kingdom as a son and co-heir with Christ, he then attempts to heap some of his old ways of seeking righteousness through himself, he ends up transgressing the faith that he's been called to. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Let that one sink in for a second. Through the law, I died to the law. In some ways, I, I think this is a hard verse to wrap our minds around. Or, or either it's something very painfully obvious that I'm overthinking, or Paul's letting his readers into a bit of personal revelation. I think it points to his previous life in Judaism, back to that track of trying to fulfill the law to gain righteousness. So how is it through the law that he died to the law? the impossibility of its fulfillment in himself. After all, the law condemns all those who can't fulfill it entirely. James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And so the law that cannot be fulfilled, it brings death. And in some regard, that, it's a major part of the freedom we experience in Christ. Like Paul, we can live to God because we've died to the law. We're no longer trying to walk the fine line of appeasing the law with its demands. We've died to it so that we might live to God. Because if I continue to strive to fulfill this law in myself, I'm living for myself. And that seems kind of odd to frame it like that, doesn't it? I mean, you would think that a life spent trying to fulfill a law that God put in place would be honoring to God. And yet he sent his son as a propitiation. Why? To fulfill the law completely. The law that I could never fulfill. The law that demands death to those who can't fulfill it. Christ took that upon himself. Standing in our place, we who believe in him, who have been born again of a living hope, we're dead to the law and alive to God. And that is such good news. And that's where Paul lands here maybe one of my favorite statements in the entire Bible. I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Wow. Wow, right? You see the culmination here of all the prior verses, justification by faith and not works, rebuild what I tore down, through the law we died of the law, and it all comes to a head here with the statement, I have been crucified with Christ. And this goes beyond, I found a better way around the law problem. This is about identity. For the believer, this is who we are, rooted in Christ, abiding in him. So for those of you who know Patrick, you may have heard his pitch for our church slogan, come and die with us. It's a lovely invitation, isn't it? And it's got layered meaning to be sure. And I believe it's currently framed up nicely to a t-shirt that Patrick got for his birthday referencing the workout barn, which he might be wearing underneath his shirt or he was earlier at least. (laughs) But at the root of it all, it's about laying down the old so that we can put on the new. It's about who we are in Christ. Romans 6, 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And I believe that's at the heart of this letter. It's a matter of identity. Often we read in scripture about God not showing partiality and I've got a bunch of verses referenced here, Acts 10.34, Romans 2.11, Galatians 2.6, Ephesians 6.9, Colossians 3.25. You can write it down if you need. About a salvation that's irrespective of where we're from, who our parents are, what languages we speak, whether we have much or little, whether we're nailing it in life or the weight of our existence feels like it's crushing us. God, the Father, doesn't seem concerned about those metrics as qualifiers. He's concerned with seeing his son magnified in his people. And it starts with death, which might sound odd. But Jesus died that we might live and not live in the sense of extending our mortal lives another few years or decades, but that we might truly live. As Paul says, I died so that I might live to God. And what is life? For the believer, Christ is our life. He's our substance, our treasure. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And again, how fitting are these verses coming off of the heels of Resurrection Sunday? Just like John Mark preached a couple weeks back when relaying Peter's missing the mark up against Palm Sunday, we're talking about the death that Jesus died on the cross and the fact that in spite of all that Paul could say of himself, his education, his heritage, even his many works and miracles and stories as a minister and apostle, he lands on, I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The sheer and utter conviction in these words, it's stirring. I mean, Paul is laying down the gauntlet for we who believe. 
And there's a question in the subtext, and it's simply, who are we? What defines us? I'm a husband and a father and a son and a brother, and these are immutable truths about my existence in this moment. And sure, these are all aspects that God has provided and ultimately that he is both blessing and sanctifying me in. But at the core of it all, when all the layers of life are peeled back and we're laid bare before our Lord, it's Christ that's our hope of glory. It's Christ that defines our standing in heavenly places. It's Jesus Christ alone that determines eternity. And because of that truth, Paul can boldly claim, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's about identity. And please don't get me wrong here. There's purpose in our uniqueness. I'm not trying to make some reductionist argument that pairs us all down to some base layer of Christ in me robots. That's not what Paul's saying. And we see the proof in that and how diverse the writers of scripture were. I mean, even in this letter, we see the differences in Paul and Peter, and yet we also see the uniting message of the gospel in the midst of uniqueness. The gospel perfectly unites God's people. This idea of Christ in us and being crucified with him is about faith and hope. My circumstances may not change. All of those external defining characteristics can and will stand while I have breath, but the means by which all that I am can glorify God, truly glorify God, is rooted entirely in Christ and the way that he has made for me to know him. Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. It is a casting aside of lesser things. It's a resting in the hope that's been laid out before us. The initial conflict of means of justification that Paul's addressing in this letter is completely resolved in I have been crucified with Christ. That is the mic drop moment. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law and his death served as a sacrifice that didn't cover some sin for some amount of time, providing a moment of relief, a moment of being justified before a holy God. His death was and is the perfect fulfillment of the ancient edicts God set forth through Moses, a life for a life. So we see Paul's conviction in expressing his source of life and maybe there's some intimidation there, right? I mean, Paul, as a standard of living, the Christian life can be intimidating, absolutely. But Paul's standard was Christ. And Paul understood that this life in the flesh, as he puts it, isn't about reaching some pinnacle of perfection, but that Christ is perfect. And we find our means of be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect through faith in Christ alone. As Paul puts it in Philippians 3, 12 through 14, when speaking to attaining to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see, we can take hold of this truth because Christ has taken hold of us. 
1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. Thanks be to God. He has made a way where there previously was no way. And it's because of that reality that we can join Paul in saying, I do not nullify the grace of God. We need not make attempts at fulfilling that which has been fulfilled. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. We are justified in the sight of God, put into right standing. The debt of sin has been paid, not through our works, but through faith in Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection. And we are now free to grow through the sanctifying work of the spirit without fear of condemnation. So, Christ Church, let us find our hope in Christ alone. The entirety of the law has been satisfied in Christ. So let us be fully satisfied in him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Pray, Lord, that it would stir us to treasure you above all things, that we would see Christ in his rightful place as deserving all that we are, and that we would use our gifts, our lives, to magnify that truth, to glorify you. I pray that over your people, over this community, Lord, that every encounter with your word would, would change us, that we would never leave the same as we came. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thank you for worshiping with us through the preaching of God's word. We exist to glorify God by making disciples. We would love to have you join us in person as we gather together on Sundays at 10 a.m. at the Covenant Preparatory School on Hamblin Road in Kingwood, Texas. To learn more about Christ Church Kingwood, visit our website at ChristChurchKingwood.org. Go in peace.